Welcome back to Those Happy Places, the podcast that treats theme park rides and attractions like literature. I'm Buddy Duquesne. And I'm Alice White, and this week we'll be talking about the Hollywood Tower of Terror and the new reskin of the ride at Disney California Adventure, which is called Guardians of the Galaxy Mission Breakout. Which, by the way, buddy, I had to do a lot of research into figuring out how to punctuate the name of this ride. It is Guardians of the Galaxy hyphen mission colon breakout exclamation point. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) What a wonderful introduction. Uh, Today we want to answer a question that's been burning at the back of fans of both rides' minds. Uh, Namely... What does this reskin mean? What does a reskin do that building a new ride, for example, or demolishing an old ride doesn't do? And finally, how does theming affect audience experience of identical motions? Um, and I think, Alice, if we, if we really want to start this thing off right, we should jump right in and get to our uh, special guest caller for the week. Absolutely. Our very dear friend, Charles Gustine, has sent us an awesome clip. Uh, he's, he was the inspiration for the topic this week. Uh, we, we chose to talk about these rides because he specifically requested them. And he sent us this really awesome clip uh, with some of his thoughts and opinions to get us started. Hey there, Alice and Buddy. Uh, this is Charles Gustine, your well-timed GIF correspondent on Twitter and uh, host of a podcast about icons. So I'm really excited to be calling in or um, MP3-ing in about a ride that feels especially emblematic, iconic uh, at at the park it's in, MGM, or I'll, I'll always call it MGM. Like, I can't think of another ride other than Tower of Terror that takes up so much of sort of the mind space of a park so much of the percentage of what you're kind of thinking about when you go to that park than Tower of Terror does at MGM. Like, to give you some context into the MGM that I grew up on, which was kind of the mid to late 90s, right around when the Aerosmith rock and roller coaster opened up across the way from Tower of Terror, that was, it's this weird dead end, which is so rare in a Disney park that you would go down this long corridor uh, at the bottom right of the map. I have no idea the cardinal direction you're going in when you go that way, but it's the bottom right of the MGM map. And you go down there pretty much just for Tower of Terror and the rock and roller coaster. And you have to go back up, you know, it's like a five minute walk. There's no, there's no circular path that gets you to the other parts of the park which would be death to most theme park areas. But of course, I think mostly, I mean, it's the thrill ride part of the park, but I think it's also the Tower of Terror is the true weenie, uh, the true e-ticket of MGM to the point where, you know, controversially for forever, the, the supposed weenie at the center of the park, the thing that's supposed to draw you in, Grauman's Chinese Theater, was covered with this stupid uh, Fantasia Mickey hat for, for forever. I think that the thing with Tower of Terror and why there's this instinctual defensiveness of it, even at California Adventure, where there's still a bunch of other Tower of Terrors in the world, one of them being taken away and replaced with a Marvel property, is it feels like Tower of Terror is the only ride of its generation, of the early 90s, late 80s, 
that kind of immediately got grandfathered in to classic status, you know, the caliber of the e-ticket attractions that the original Imagineers were making with Walt. And so there's obviously this sort of reflexive anti-blockbuster bias when people are like, oh no, Guardians, Marvel Land, um, which is sort of silly when it comes to Tower of Terror because, of course, it's the Twilight Zone Tower of Terror, so it's not an original property, although it is an original story within sort of an anthology. But I think more so it's it's like a reflexive dread at something like a Tower of Terror being vulnerable to the creep of, of refits. Like, if this could go, is nothing sacred. You know, and it is sort of sacred to me. I think it's one of the first rides that really gave me an appreciation when I was younger that there was, that Imagineering was something more than just designing a ride, that it was designing the line, the pre-show, organizing your references, getting the dust just right in the lobby space, getting mahjong, you know, professional mahjong players in to halfway play through a game and then telling them to stop so that if someone coming through the lobby looks at a half-finished mahjong game, they don't they're not taken out of the experience like, "Ugh, they clearly don't know how mahjong works." Like it's it's no small wonder to me that this, the Tower of Terror, actually ended up being the ride that inspired the first sort of ride-based movie, the one that starred Steve Gutenberg and Jumanji-era Kirsten Dunst in the in the mid-90s, and that they could peel away the whole Rod Serling Twilight Zone layer of it, which is kind of the front-facing story, like, oh, you're here, you're in a Twilight Zone episode, that's sort of what you're experiencing. They could peel all that away, and there was still this really solid core of a story about, you know, Halloween night, 1939, and the raining, it's pouring, the old man is snoring. That whole iconography uh, <laughs> actually was strong enough to build an entire script around without having to do too much to it. I mean, more so than the upsy-downsy part of it, which, of course, is a lot of people's favorite thing. What always struck me about Tower of Terror, like Haunted Mansion, was the milieu, you know, the atmosphere, the the just the beauty of that building and the way that it's sort of decayed since quote-unquote 1939. So I'm really excited to hear you guys talk about it uh, and to talk about it in contrast with the Guardians of the Galaxy ride, which I confess I, I won't know anything about because I'm not in California. So I, I hope you guys can enlighten me. Thanks. Thank you, Charles Gustine. Charles, that was awesome. And thank you so much for sending in that clip. We're so excited to have you uh, influencing this episode. And we're, uh, I'm looking forward to, uh, to talking about some of the points you brought up. Uh, yeah. But we should probably clarify maybe for some of the, uh, some of the audience yeah, uh, because, a couple because of specifics. We, we, when listening to this, uh, knew everything that Charles was talking about and definitely didn't have to look up uh, some of his history and uh, terminology. So we I, thought, you I know, definitely just already knew what a weenie was. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> so Alice, I, I, I thought that just, just in case the audience uh, who is listening did not know some of these terms, we could, we could kind of share what you and I knew, you know, we, we grew up knowing we knew this the whole time. 
always definitely always new all of this so, uh, so charles your your um audio clip was mostly about the uh disney world uh mgm studios tower of terror uh which you know listeners who are only really familiar with the current era of disney uh might not know that when uh what is now called disney's hollywood studios opened uh in florida that it was originally called mgm studios and it was a kind of tie-in uh licensing deal between uh Disney and kind of the now defunct not so influential MGM production studio. Right, MGM used to be one of the biggest studios in in Hollywood and was such an icon of Hollywood that it made sense to license a Hollywood themed part of the park with MGM. Um, but that stopped, uh, making as much sense. And Disney started, uh, Disney's, uh, film department really got a resurgence, uh, in their own right. And, um, and took that, that, and that licensing was removed and it just became Hollywood studios sometime in the nineties. Yeah. Sometime in the late nineties. Uh, and, and the, the important thing about MGM as a, a licensing partner is that it, uh, lent a certain air of 1930s nostalgia to the Hollywood studios, uh, kind of aesthetic, uh, and great, the great movie ride, which a lot of fans are very, very into focused a lot on both Disney and MGM properties. So there were things like, you know, you could go and see a set from Wizard of Oz and the witch would pop up. She would do a whole witchy thing and, uh, there was also a Mary Poppins thing. So you could see how kind of the two giant companies who were responsible for a lot of our, um, nostalgic memories around, uh, movies were able to kind of meld their aesthetics. And I think, uh, the Tower of Terror, which opened in 1994 at what was then called MGM Studios, uh, embodies that, right? It embodies the kind of combination between the two. Uh, but Tower of Terror is not, or Twilight Zone is not an MGM property. No, it's a CBS property, uh, based off of the, uh, Twilight Zone television show that started in 1959. And, but, but, uh, by licensing it alongside the MGM properties and the whole Hollywood Studios theme, the Hollywood Tower of Terror is that 1930s old Hollywood aesthetic combined with the uh the big theme park ride like big e-ticket ride that that Disney was looking for to put in that spot and uh it's it became such an iconic uh part of the scenery it's it's a lot taller than than most of the scenery around it it's uh it's imposing it's scary and it has it became in that part of the park what uh what I definitely already knew was called uh, <laughs> a weenie. I, right. So no, I I admit I had I definitely had to look it up. We, Charles, you had, you're we had no idea. To me, I was so embarrassed that I didn't know. But once I looked it up, it all makes sense. Um. So for those who like me maybe didn't know what a weenie was, um, a, a, a weenie is a is a Disney term, or a, a like a slang term. Uh, coined, I guess, by Disney. Um, it is a 
like a, a, a piece of the, of the park that is like a, a magnet attraction. It's visually, uh, eye catching. It's meant to draw not just the eye, but the feet to that part of the park. And some, uh, some, some Disney weenies in, include the Cinderella's or Sleeping Beauty's castles, uh, Tower of Terror, the Matterhorn, these big pieces of architecture that are specifically meant for, it's like, uh, it, and, and the word weenie comes from, uh, I guess Disney, uh, uh Walt would grab a, a weenie or a, or a hot dog from the refrigerator and, uh, and share with his, with his dog, um, lady. And he realized that, that she would follow him anywhere while he was holding the hot dog because, uh, because she knew that he was going to, uh, to give her some. And he realized that that kind of idea of like, it's kind of like a, like a carrot in front of the, in front of the horse to get them to go somewhere. You give them something to aim at. You give the audience a, uh, a, a visual goal to reach and their feet will lead them in that direction. And so you put a, something like Tower of Terror, a, a, a weenie and a part of the park and a kind of a dead end part of the park to draw people into that space. And it maybe gets them to walk into a space they wouldn't have considered before in order to get to this big weenie. God, I didn't want to say that. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But this, this uh, kind of tantalizing, uh, interesting, eye catching uh, promise of a thrill or promise of something that uh, is, you know, beyond the normal experience. Right. Exactly. And and on the surface, it's, it's actually a a dead simple kind of logical concept. It's like, Hey, if you put something interesting somewhere, people are going to move towards it. But I think what separates, uh, say a, um, like a splash mountain or maybe a space mountain, which are big e-ticket rides that attract people from a weenie like Tower of Terror or uh, the Cinderella's Castles uh, or Southern Beauty's Castle um, is that it's part of the skyline as well. Uh, and you can kind of look up and see it in the distance and feel yourself drawn towards it. Uh, right. And, and, and we're, we're seeing kind of more examples of that as the parks sort of expand. So I'm, I'm kind of thinking of the, uh, the backdrop of Radiator Springs, this mountainside. Right. That's, that's its own kind of weenie. And you go like, wow, there it is. I got to go towards that. Uh, exactly. Uh, Hogwarts Castle at Universal Studios is a, is a good example of that. And that's at the end. You spot it from a distance. That's at the end of, uh, Hogsmeade, right? So you have to, you have to go all the way to the end to get there. And that keeping people moving and kind of stretching out where the crowds are does improve park flow. Uh, right. So th- it's not just giving you a narrative or a place to go, but it's acting as a, as a, a physical, um, like journey. You have to move and it keeps the park flowing and it, it, uh, eliminates spacing problems and it, it's, it's practical as well as, um, as well as narratively interesting. Yeah. So that's, that's, thank you, Charles, for introducing us to the concept of the weenie. And I think maybe someday 
we might make a longer episode about it. But it was worth exploring a little bit here when we're talking about Tower of Terror because it became that for California Adventure as well, in my opinion. Right. It totally spiced up a part of the park, like we, we talked about in a, in our earlier episode about California Adventure specifically. Um, Tower of Terror was not part of that original skyline, and it was a part of the park, like we said, we did not especially spend a lot of time in. But it was super effective drawing us into that space and getting us to explore more of Hollywood Studios because Tower of Terror was there. And it really, it very much just like at MGM, uh, is in a back corner, not next to anything else. Uh, like it's next to the Hyperion Theater and a path to a bug's land, which will soon be closed off due to construction. So it's going to be really isolated. Uh, and keeping people moving into that corner of the park increases foot traffic again and make sure that the a Tower of Terror, unlike uh, rides like Haunted Mansion or Pirates of the Caribbean, which have extremely large capacities um, for for throughput, isn't really a guest eater, I would say, right? It doesn't, like, no, get people occupied people, in it. Right. You can fit a lot of people in the building. Like, they've got a lot of line space in the building. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you can't, even though you can have, as I was reading, uh, you could have multiple cars per elevator shaft, the way that uh, the way that it's laid out, you don't get it. It's on an Omnimover track. You don't get like a constant flow of people. It takes a while to load everybody. It's a big thrill ride. So you have to spend extra time making sure everyone is strapped in and safe. Um, so it, it often, the line is super long for it. Yeah. Um, um, so, so maybe we should kind of start talking about what exactly tower of terror as a ride is. Um, so it's described as an accelerated drop ride, meaning that, uh, the ride was advertised as pulling you down, not simply dropping you quote unquote, faster than the speed of gravity. So, so you experience a little bit of weightlessness. Um, but it's interesting because, uh, both Florida and California's, uh, version of the ride had a top speed of only 39 miles an hour at its fastest drop. Um, which doesn't sound that fast if, if I'm thinking about relative speeds. I, I don't know, but when you're on it, it feels really fast. It does feel extremely fast. And, and there hasn't been a time when I've ridden it when I haven't floated a little bit and been like, Oh, here it ha- here it goes. It's happening. Uh, <laughs> so, I mean, it's, it's certainly fast enough to thrill. Um, so, you know, the number doesn't really matter so much as the experience, right? Right. And then maybe we should start to talk about uh, our favorite concept, uh, the immersivity of the ride. (laughs) Uh, Yes, you got to love immersivity. Again, as we've mentioned in almost every episode, Disney really does excel at immersivity. Um, As soon as you, I mean, from walking up to the Hollywood Tower Hotel, you are... Uh, you're given this aesthetic that even stretches for to the line, to the area right outside the ride. You wait in line, and there's cobwebs, and uh, like like Charles said, the, the there's a the mahjong game that's half played, 
Uh, yeah, and there's, so, there's that a... you, so you can't just look at the board, a, a Mahjong player can't just look at the board and be like, oh, that's not realistic. That's not a real like, Mahjong really... game. <laughs> and, and so you, you are immediately drawn in during the line, during the pre-show, during all of it. It is, uh, it is a masterclass in how to get people absorbed into the world and it's spooky and it's scary and you get like a twilight zone uh intro from rod sterling or a really good rod sterling impersonator uh what how that effect was achieved because rod sterling was not alive when the ride was being made was actually a lot like uh those scenes with jfk from forrest gump if you remember oh, that technology. Yeah. So archival yeah. footage was used. They uh, kind of interspersed him in with uh, new footage of the ride and of the backstory of the ride. And then when he wasn't saying what they needed him to say, uh, they didn't digitally alter his image at all, but they would cleverly hide uh, the new dialogue over the other footage. So you only saw Rod ah. Serling speaking when he was saying words similar to what they needed him to be saying at the time. And they had a voice actor, of course, do an impersonation. So anyways, it was a very, very interesting effect that uh, for me was so immersive and so kind of true. And so it felt so connected to the aesthetic of the Twilight Zone, the actual show that I believed it as a real thing that Rod Serling had like posthumously done. Maybe he had <laughs> recorded part of part of the intro before he had died or something like that. Um, it, it, truthfully, I thought that before when I was young enough to not know, I thought that the movie the Twilight Zone movie was based off of an episode of the Twilight Zone that I had just hadn't seen. And that so that the episode became a movie became a ride. And uh and that's why we had a Rod Sterling intro. I thought it was the intro like to the original episode. But then they were uh, like yeah. But then he was like, You're about to uh, uh you know Tonight's and then, episode but of then, the Twilight Zone, it calls for a different sort of introduction. And it stars you, right? Like right. Oh, that's but where it, it kind of that's where I felt like, oh, this is probably, a, now it's probably an impersonator. You know, like. Yeah. I. Yeah, and that's, that's, that's a really interesting uh, way to kind of welcome the audience in as well, right? Is to say, like, here's the, here's the theme, well, not theme song, because Twilight Zone didn't really have a theme song, but kind of a. Okay, okay, first of all. <laughs> <laughs> it's not how it sounds. It's just how everybody no. said like and and second of all uh yeah but the the way that the show introduces itself it's um it's it's kind of a, a narration over images it's it's kind of a theme narration for lack of a better word it's it's not really as musical as say like a like the theme song of cheers right or like <laughs> right. theme song of the simpsons no, but uh, it is it is an intro, and it's a classic. And even even I w I wasn't a fan of the show growing up, but even I was familiar with it. It was it was culturally uh, prevalent. Like right, you said like like you when you were giving me examples of it uh, while we were planning this episode, you sent me all the Futurama references to the Twilight Zone stuff like that, right, which would have come door. up. 
the scary door. <laughs> All of that, which would have come up, uh, just by, just in the zeitgeist, even, you know, for a young kid like me, when, when it was, when the ride came out. Right. So, so it, it didn't really necessitate that you were familiar with the Twilight Zone, but being familiar with it kind of, uh, lent to the immersivity where you were, you were kind of, just watching an intro to what could have been a pretty good episode of the Twilight Zone, but then Rod turns to the camera and goes, tonight, the Twilight Zone stars you. Tonight, you're in an episode of the Twilight Zone. In fact, you're already there. Uh, it's taking immersivity super literally. Like, yeah, and <laughs> that, that kind of turn to the camera and wink thing uh, is pretty unique. And... It, it's it's an interesting structure, story structure for a ride to take to say like years ago a thing had happened, a thing happened. Now that thing is happening for you, uh, and you might not survive. And I think we were talking about this a little bit in our, our planning. Is that that's that's a really scary proposal. Um, a lot it's of a, a lot of, hmm? but it's not original, is it? Isn't that pretty much Not exactly really. what the Haunted Mansion promises you? It, it does promise you... That you might not make it out spirits. alive. Right? Yeah, and that there's room for one more, right? Like, there's room for a thousand uh, is, a, is a key line. It kind of increases the threat level of, uh, of the ride. And that's interesting because the Haunted Mansion and the Tower of Terror share a few other similarities, namely pre-show. Uh, so the Tower of Terror's line is in, uh, I would, I would describe it as three stages, maybe four, depending on how you want to look at it. But depending on there's how, the how long exterior. you have to wait. <laughs> right, depending on how many people are there. So there's the exterior, which is just kind of a, uh, overgrown kind of exterior of a hotel. It's pretty well themed. It's not, uh, too outstanding. Uh, but you can look at the Tower of Terror. You can hear people screaming inside. So that's fun. Uh, you go into the lobby and again, the cobwebs, the Mahjong game. There's a creepy doll on a couch. Uh, you can see the busted up elevator in the lobby. Uh, and you're like, oh, what what happened there? I hope I get that explained to me in the next room. <laughs> um, and then you move into the office, which is like the the pre-show proper, right? So there's this collection of creepy artifacts, and then the lights go out, the Twilight Zone intro starts, and then Rod tells you that you're now in the Twilight Zone. Uh, then the doors open again, and finally you are in line for the ride. Um <laughs> Which, which is just just like going from the exterior to the haunted mansion to the lobby or the the foyer and then to the stretching room uh those stages are are perfectly mirrored i would say yeah um so where you would get off the elevator in the haunted mansion and go through the hall of uh strangeness the the gallery and the rotating heads uh here you go through the boiler room and that adds to the, the atmosphere a lot, too. There's all this clanking and noises that sound almost like human speech and uh, very, very good lighting. Uh, and, of course, the bellhops who are working the ride are doing the spooky Haunted Mansion thing where they're, like, morose 
and and they kind of glide along and if when everything is firing on all cylinders the twilight zone i would say or the twilight zone tower of terror is just as well themed in terms of q as a haunted mansion the one thing i would criticize it on is probably that the haunted mansion is built for that sort of pacing whereas the tower of terror very much feels like they wanted to achieve that but because of the e-ticket nature of the ride, it's much slower. Right. Uh, and you don't really get that that constant build up that you get with an Omnimover system, which I will praise forever. Yeah, your very favorite thing, the Omnimover system. If the Tower Hollywood Tower uh, Hollywood Tower of Terror could ha- be on an Omni track, you could keep that pacing and you could keep that tension. But going through a line and then watching a spooky film about how your life is in danger only to stand in much, much more, more line, line is... Behind the same people that you were in line behind before. Yeah. Um, you know, like... It, and it, maybe not even... Possibly... Not, not in front of the same people that you were, maybe <laughs> because you get shuffled into a room and then everybody finds their way out and all of a sudden you're like, Oh man, I was in front of that guy. Oh. <laughs> now you're like six people behind where you were. Jeez. Uh, and yeah, that's another problem. I would say is that because because of that, there's you're almost motivated to like go stand by the door, and that breaks immersivity. But that's the same, um, I guess, with the stretching room, with the elevator and the honey mansion. That's true. You get shuffled. You and I, when we were when we were Disney punks, we would go and stand right by the door. So we could be the first um, ones on the, on the ride, but with the Omnimover track, yeah, really you're not waiting that much. You longer. don't, you don't lose any time, I would say. So it's, it's, it was kind of just us being punks ourselves. Yeah. Disney punks. <laughs> uh, so, you know, but, but they, they really are similar rides, uh, structurally for the queue. Now, when you get on the ride, they're very, very different. Um, and there is that sense of danger, right? Like, the the narrator says like you're in the twilight zone now wave goodbye to the normal world there's a room that the doors open up on where there's a mirror and you can watch yourself wave goodbye and then you get zapped out of existence and it's like well i i guess we're not getting off this elevator alive it's very it's very scary it is super um, scary especially for for little kids um and i think we we can kind of transition here because uh the mission colon breakout <laughs> um, guardians of the galaxy hyphen is... mission colon breakout exclamation point <laughs> sorry i didn't mean to uh mess up the the punctuation um very important <laughs> mission breakout is not mission breakout is not that scary no um, it's not at all and that's interesting. Uh, so maybe we should talk a little bit about, you know, what happened? Why do we have Mission Breakout? Why are we even talking about it right now? Right. So uh, along with, and and you can go back a little bit to our California Adventure episode also. We talked about this a little bit. But along with the uh, the remaking of California Adventure and kind of the restructuring into you know, DCA 2.0, uh, we're starting to see a lot more um, additions to the park and changes in the park uh, relating to some of uh, Disney's bigger acquired properties, such as Pixar and Marvel. And um, 
so they're restructuring Paradise Pier to become Pixar Pier. They had they added Cars Land. They're adding a Marvel Land. And the pretty much the first step, though, that they took was reskinning Hollywood Tower of Terror into Guardians of the Galaxy Mission Breakout. And they didn't take out the tower. They barely even covered it up. It was just a, like some scaffolding. And then all of a sudden it was yeah, that's a different a- ride. It's a common complaint from the people uh, that I've seen talking about the ride on Twitter is that the the exterior reskin could be considered lackluster from a certain point of view. Oh, I think it's uh, funny. Yeah, I, I agree that it looks very. It looks like it's right out of a Marvel movie. Uh, it, it doesn't. I don't buy it as the collector's uh, fortress because that's not how it looked in the movie. It looks a lot more like Jeff Goldblum's character's planet from uh, Thor Ragnarok. Right. But where, where, like, be the whole building is covered in metal and pipes. Yeah, they are brothers. Uh, that's canon. Awesome. So, yeah, I, I could see that. I could see how, how it works. Um, and I think it looks it looks fine enough. And especially at night, it's lit up very, oh, very well. It's very, very pretty at night. We should note that uh, California Adventures Tower of Terror, which opened in 2004, was not a day one attraction, right? California right. Adventure opened in 2001. Uh, and as part of the immediate response to the negative backlash and criticism that DCA 1.0 was receiving, uh, Tower of Terror was kind of added in as like an addendum, like, oh yeah, just kidding, another thrill ride, here you guys go. Um, and it had a couple of very important changes uh, that separated it from its uh, counterpart in... Uh, in Florida. So for example, in Florida, there's an entire scene where the car moves forward through what is called the fifth dimension. Uh, and then it begins the drop sequence. Uh, that's not present in DCA's tower of terror. Uh, there's also randomized drop sequences at Disney Hollywood studios, which we do not have in California. No, uh, though that would change a little bit with, uh, with, Guardians of the Galaxy. Right. So instead uh, of randomized important... drop sequences, Guardians right, of the we, Galaxy we have these randomized... randomized plot sequences. Right. Uh, but but uh, perhaps most importantly about uh, Tower of Terror, and I think we'll get to this a little bit later as well, is that it was a popular ride that nobody really had a lot of complaints about. Um, was it was a, a solid thrill ride movie. that consistently had an hour queue for it. Uh, and that was that was never really changed. There wasn't any unpopularity or any uh, criticism of the ride. No. As far as I could tell. It was a lot of people's favorites, Um, uh, at least people our age uh, and and older. It was, it's not a children's ride. It is a proper e-ticket thrill ride. Um, But it was still very, very, very popular. And sometimes it felt like the only reason to go to DCA at all. At least when uh, we true, were, true so. enough, true enough. Uh, if if you could stomach if you could stomach the weight, which was usually substantial because it was a big deal. Right. Um, so in 2017, uh, a couple of weeks after Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Two was released, uh, Tower of Terror reopened, branded as T- Guardians of the Galaxy Mission Breakout. So, do you want to talk a little bit about what the the plot of this ride is? Sure. So, uh, there's a, a couple of different, um, like, 
plot specifics that change from ride to ride, but as a as a as a whole, you are as as a as the audience brought into uh, the uh, the collection of the <laughs> the collector uh, who was a, a a fixture in the first Guardians of the Galaxy movie, played by uh, Benicio del Toro. Uh, not really a not really a villain so much as a uh benevolent eccentric who kind of features heavily in the universe. Uh, right. And he's meant he's kind meant of also to... an antagonist kind yeah. of guy. Yeah. He he definitely wasn't a hero, but he I, I, I yeah, I referred to him as as a fixture for a reason. He's not a hero or yeah. a bad guy. He's just a guy. And he's got this big collection. And he's the one that knows about the Infinity Stones, and he gives us the breakdown of what the Infinity Stones are. And so he's a it's a set piece and a character that we, the audience, as fans of Guardians of the Galaxy, should be familiar with. So we step into yeah. the collection, and while you're there, you're treated to a, a little bit of a welcome, and th- thank you for coming to take this tour. And you step into the room that was the office where you used to see the Rod Sterling video and you're getting an intro like, hi, welcome to the collection. This is, you know, this is how it goes. And suddenly you're interrupted by an extremely cool Rocket Raccoon animatronic. This is probably my favorite animatronic ever, by the way. Like you can see. So cool. You can see the sneer on his face when he emotes and his whiskers uh, kind of twitch. And he, he, you only see half of his body, but, you know, his tail moves along. And it's extremely cool. Like, I, I think animatronic technology has kind of stalled in a lot of ways because we're not seeing as much of it. Uh, we're seeing a lot of screens. Right. Uh, but when when they do it, when they put in the effort... They nail it these days, and this is such a cool animatronic. It is he's a, completely unlike anything else in Disneyland. He's very cool, and he's so funny. And you know, straight out of the straight out of the movie, he's cracking jokes and 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 threatening people, and he's letting you know that all of this is a facade. All of this, you know, this tour and everything is a facade. That the collector has, um, has the Remaining They've guardians taken the guardians the prison, prisoner. Yeah. Right. They're prisoners and they're kind of like even like on display as part of the collection. That's, I think that was like part of the draw for you, the character. Uh, yeah. if, if you're kind of playing in the universe, it's like, Oh, we get to see the guardians of the galaxy. Like how, how exotic, how wonderful. <laughs> um, I think as, as part of your stated motivation. Um, and that's really interesting. So he like breaks out and then he takes a look at you and he's like, look, I need your help. Right. Right. I need your help. I need that guy's eye. I need that guy's leg. <laughs> and we're going <laughs> to, and we're going to break out my friends because we've got to go. You, save, he needs your hands. <laughs> he needs your uh, hands. Yes. Uh, <laughs> he needs to be able to scan your fingerprints so that the gantry lift uh, gets access to the level where the guardians are being held. Exactly. So, because he so doesn't have you, fingerprints, he has little nubbins. Oh, <laughs> so then you you go and and by the time you know you wait in a little more line, and by the time you get on the elevator, you help Rocket and 
Peter Quill and Gamora and Baby Groot and Drax break out of the collection. And you, uh, and, and the, the elevator is malfunctioning because Rocket has, you know, taken control of it. So that's what's with all the drops and lifts and, and stuff like that. And then you help the, you help your heroes escape. And that's the end. Usually at the end of the ride, they, they thank you for all of your, your great help. (laughs) Um, and, and that's, that's an interesting thing, uh, to do to the audience, right? To say, uh, you're involved in this. Here's your small bit part to play. Raise your hands at the right moments so that the guardians can escape. Um, clap your hands. It reminds me a little bit. Yeah, exactly. Um, (laughs) because it's going to happen regardless, right? So it reminds me a little bit of uh Indiana Jones the ride um right. Temple of the Forbidden Eye where uh I've always wondered if there could be a version of the ride where nobody looks into the eyes of the idol <laughs> Right where you agree with your car watching. Yeah if you could have somebody watching and be like, oh, they did it, and they, like, press a button and there's a switch and your car just, like, turns around and you're safe. <laughs> <laughs> like, obviously not, right? Wouldn't right. be much of a ride. Would be a waste of everybody's time in the line. Um Plus, I will and, always stare defiantly into the eyes of the idol. Like, I... T- well, that's I funny, because that I, I used to avoid it, uh but now I look because, like... I am a, I am a full grown adult and I can do what I want. <laughs> but, uh, but you know, no, it's, yeah, it's, if it's you funny to say to the audience, to it's funny to say out. to the audience, you have responsibility in this. You're helping out or, or putting us in more danger depending on your actions. So right. make sure you act the right way, uh, in this completely scripted, predetermined series of events. And it's always come yeah. off as a little disingenuous to me. Like, uh, what exactly, what exactly is my involvement? My involvement is to be along for the ride and experience it. So it, it, could there possibly be a version of this ride where everybody defiantly keeps their hands down and Rocket has to like yell at you until somebody does it or like, uh, something like that so that it's truly interactive? Like, no, of course not. But it, it's, uh, it's an interesting way to welcome the audience into the world anyways. Right. And, there are heroes. There's no reason for us to not raise our hands and help out. Right. <laughs> but also, and it, we, we want we want the guardians to escape. They're fun, and we love them. And plus, cool music is playing. Plus, really cool music is playing. So this is where the cool music that's playing is where the uh, plot, the pl- the different plots start to diverge. You've got six different, well, not wholly different. A lot of them have things in common, but you have six options. When the elevator starts moving, suddenly you either hear Hemi with your best shot by Pat Benatar, Give Up the Funk by Parliament, Born to be Wild by Steppenwolf, I Want You Back by the Jackson 5, Free Ride by the Edgar Winter Group, or Burn in Love by Elvis Presley. Those six really great songs, one of them will play. And depending on which one plays, which one, when, when Rocket gets the uh, Walkman plugs in, and starts your soundtrack, a different plot happens. Sometimes you go up to a level and you see Gamora fighting the monster. And sometimes you go up and, and it's Drax and he's laughing and making fun of you while he's fighting. Um, sometimes you see Star-Lord trying to, to fly around, but he gets, you know, wrapped up in a, the tentacle monster or whatever. Like mm-hmm. they're, the, mm-hmm. while they're trying to escape, 
they're running into trouble and it's different. Each, each one is different. A couple of repeating jokes, but they are different. This is a, a variant ride. Yeah, and and variant rides are are kind of a a newer technology that definitely warrants its own episode as well, um, because the ability to kind of change things from ride to ride uh, encourages audience retention. Right? Uh, if you haven't seen all six, you might as well get back on the ride. Um, <laughs> right. I've only seen two of them. Same so. with me. I've only seen two, and that's between three different rides. So that means I, I, you don't even have a guarantee that you'll see a new one every time. So you know you end up back on the ride a lot of times, and there's there's a real desire to be back and see everything that the ride has to offer. Not to mention there's one more variation on Guardians of the Galaxy: the Monsters After Dark variation. Ah, uh, did you get to ride Monsters After Dark? No, but I, I believe you were saying that you did. I did. I made a special trip over. Last time I was at Disneyland was uh, right before Halloween. Made a special trip over to specifically to ride Monsters After Dark, and it was so much fun. It's the same. I mean, it's the same ride. There's not really a whole lot different about it, but it was. It just. It felt so special to to be there. To all of a sudden, like the lighting changed on the front. You know, and, and, and you're like, ooh, this is after dark. Like, this is where, you know, it, it, it just felt, I don't know, special. Yeah, like, and, and the, the idea there is that it's much spookier um, and that the, the monsters of, are a little bit more dangerous. Uh, right. And, and Rocket and, needs your help to, like, rescue baby Groot. Uh, right. So it's kind so, of like a, so a the, different it's, plot. It's a sequel to Mission Breakout, actually. Because it's supposed to be like you've oh we've escaped the collection, but we left Baby Groot behind, and now all the monsters are loose, and we have to go save Baby Groot. So it's still Jeez. a breakout story. Yeah. I know. So it's still a breakout story, and it's still like like the the drops and everything are still the same, but it's a little scarier. The stakes feel a little higher, and it's like um, if the mission breakout kind of feels a little, a little more on the childish side, what with the, Oh, raise your hands. So Rocky can get your fingerprints and all of that. Like feels like a, for a little bit younger audience, um, monsters after dark definitely, uh, took all of that away and it became, and it wasn't necessarily raunchier, but rocket is kind of a raunchy character. Like he's, he's cracking, cracking jokes that go over most kids heads, you know? And, yeah, and he's he's a little mean too. That's that's one part of the fun of the guardians themselves is that they're they're a little bit they're outlaws, so they're yeah. not they're not they're goody two shoes. They're not Captain <laughs> America. Um, so, but they are not total dicks. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So the the it's funny you should mention kind of a continuity between the versions of the ride, right? Because uh, we discovered in our research that. Uh, Mission Breakout is not part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Uh, right, it features the same, the same characters, the same actors, the same versions of those characters, presumably with very similar backstories and experiences and relationships, but it is non-canon to the MCU. Uh, but it is canon to its own, uh, theme park universe, which presumably right. as it grows and builds as the new Marvel land that they've just announced, uh, continues to grow, will have its own continuity. 
which is really, really fascinating to me that we can, we can kind of have a continuity within the park as well, featuring your cinematic universe heroes. Right. I'm looking forward to seeing, uh, what else they come up with. Cause I love the, I love the Marvel cinematic universe. And so far I love the theme park universe because I love this ride. I love mission breakout. Mission breakout is a very, very fine ride. And I would say, I would say I like it just as much as I ever liked uh tower of terror. Uh, yeah, I look forward to it as much as I, as I did tower of terror. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're, they're very different rides, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> They're very different, tonally, but not not structurally. But not structurally, like, and uh, not physically. physically. Not physically. So, so maybe we should get to the next part of the episode where we talk about what exactly happens in a reskin, or rather, what a reskin is, and what it means between these two rides specifically. Because at the end of the day. Uh, the only thing that was changed about Tower of Terror when turning it into Mission Breakout was its theming. Uh, there was a, a, a pretty extensive overhaul of that theming, but the motion of the ride has remained identical between the two. Uh, they have identical stats, identical drop patterns, uh, nothing about them has changed, identical seating arrangements. But the theming has changed, and as a result, audience response has changed with it. Um, and you were talking about how you really love the lighthearted kind of adventure tone of Mission Breakout, and how it, it kind of contrasts against uh, Tower of Terror's kind of morose, dangerous tone. Right, exactly. I... I really get a kick out of the kind of humor from Guardians of the Galaxy. I I love the fast-paced music. I love how it feels like an interactive adventure. I think opening it up to a kind of childish uh participation almost makes it fun and fresh. And I Yeah, love raise your hands to help the Guardians is is a lot of fun. It's a fun a feeling. Classic. Clap if you believe in fairies. <laughs> you know, right, even if you don't, even if you don't know, if you know that it's not real, even if you're not a kid there being told what to do and, and just taking delight in that, uh, it, I, I it's totally fun. still do it. I it's definitely fun. put my hands up. I could and... not put my hands up. That's the thing. I, I feel, I feel invited in. I feel like I'm part of the experience, even though consciously I know I'm not. Right. And while Tower of Terror was. A, a a huge success in its theming and its um and its thrill and how you know the ride was good and 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 that is not that hasn't changed at all i think this opening this up not just to this property but to this tonal shift has really opened up the ride to a bigger more accessible audience accessibility no longer, i think really is the word here Right, uh, it's no longer that spooky, spooky, spooky tower in the distance. It's still a, it's still a weenie. It's still going to pull you towards it because it's big and and shiny and pretty. But it's no longer scary. It's fun and something to be excited for and look forward to. My one memory of the Tower of Terror in Florida, 
uh, comes from my trip in 1996 when I was basically a baby. Um, but I was, I was tall enough at the time, I believe, to write it. Um, but tell a, tell a six year old, it's the Tower of Terror. It's very scary. And they'll be like, oh, I'm never getting on that. <laughs> because <laughs> yeah, I think like I you. might die. Right. Uh, but tell them, the Guardians of the Galaxy need your help. you got to raise your hands and have fun. I feel yeah, like it, suddenly this is a ride that's accessible to everybody, everybody who's tall enough to ride on it, basically. Right. And, and I, I, when I went on it, actually, because I rode it twice, three times in one day with my mother uh, yeah. back in October. And the very last time that I rode it, um, we were sitting in, directly next to – this is cute because you can get to – um, mission breakout from Cars Land. Mm-hmm. You can, you can walk. And so we went on the Radiator Springs racers and then walked to, um, to Monsters After Dark with our fast pass. And mm-hmm. the family right in front of us, they sat with us on the, they, they my mom and I did single rider on Radiator Springs. And then mm-hmm. we just so happened to be walking in the same direction. We went from Radiator Springs, a super little kid, you know, area to mission breakout, uh, after dark, you know, guardians after dark and, and the same small child rode with us on both rides. And this, he was a little boy. He was barely tall enough to ride. Um, and he, he looked spooked by, you know, it's, Oh, it's dark and it's kind of spooky. But as soon as rocket started to speak, he was laughing. He was, there he was present in and even though it was scary it was still accessible and he was able to enjoy both rides equally his little i i i'll remember that kid forever he had the funniest little laugh and he was just so excited and, and that's I, I think that's probably the goal here uh as much as uh as much as we might kind of lament the loss of yet another spooky ride um is that is that the brand or the storytelling style that Disney wants to promote? And, right. and being able to put a little kid on a ride where his heroes need his help, and so that he can have a good time, but also you can you can please the thrill seekers as well, is a masterstroke in my opinion. Right, I I completely agree. I don't ever want to forget what it felt like as a child to go to Disneyland and to ride the rides with characters that I loved and that meant something to me. I don't want to forget what that feels like. Even as an adult, I don't, I don't want to be so focused in my adultness and my adult level cynicism to forget what it was like to love something so much. And at, at the way that only children can love something, you know? Yeah. I don't, I don't want to forget that. And I think, I think that part of the reskin, uh, was that it kind of opened us up back up to that, um, by kind of being more innocent in that way where guardian, uh, sorry, tower of terror. Uh, I guess you to, in order to write it repeatedly, you almost had to build up a tolerance within your suspension of disbelief where you say to yourself, I must not completely suspend my disbelief because I need to realize that this is not actually a dangerous situation. Right. 
because it it is very very scary. It was a it right. was proper scary. Right, and and by saying this actually isn't dangerous, this is wacky fun. Uh, it it has dropped that pretense from like at least my experience as a writer. It's dropped that pretense, and now I'm raising my hands. You know, and and now I'm laughing and having a really good time and saying like, "Woo!" When it happens, like when we drop, I'm getting into it instead of being like stone faced, like this isn't scary, this doesn't bother me, because I'm a full grown adult and I can do what I want. Um, <laughs> instead, I'm just like, "Woo! This is a great time," and that that shift in tone can do that for people. Uh, but I just wanted to counter my own point. For a second, I, I want to acknowledge that when I say, or when when we say that, you know, like Disney is for for families, and I want to be able to to feel like a kid again, riding these rides and stuff like that. I recognize that a lot of people get that feeling of feeling like a kid again from the pure nostalgia of a ride that they were already familiar with. Um, that, that, and, and even the property of the Twilight Zone being so important to a lot of people's, like, introduction to television and, or introduction to the science fiction genre, um, that is enough to trigger that feeling in people. This, mm -hmm. like, kind of joy and nostalgia and, like, I feel like a kid again. I'm just so happy to be here. I think that is totally valid for people to feel hmm. like, and yet I think that if we're going to, I, uh, see, I, I, I don't know, again, I, I don't know how I feel about this part. Maybe because guardians is more accessible than twilight zone. Like it can reach more people. That's why it's, it seems so effective, hmm. but Maybe it, it doesn't always have to be about numbers. We don't just have to reach the most people. We just have to reach uh, the the right um, tone and hit the right like level of like sensitivity to people's nostalgia. That's um, that's an interesting question, and because because from a business standpoint, I think you know the the people in charge of making changes at Disneyland might tell you that it is about the numbers. I was saying, however, they're not, um, they didn't just slap the Guardian's face on it and then just, like, leave it. Mm -hmm. They took, they put in the care and work and effort to make sure, and James Gunn directed these new scenes and everything, to specifically make sure that it's not a sloppy reskin, that it is a genuine tonal shift in this direction that like felt authentic and real and like it cared about what you the fans of guardians of the galaxy felt mm -hmm. yeah uh it's, it's not a mindless reskin it's a meaningful one yeah it's not it's not without artistic merit um and i think you were getting you were getting to something kind of really complicated that might warrant its own episode um you cannot make the argument that these happy places that we talk about um, are not art, right? They are an art form. Right. Uh, and art doesn't, 
need to be about uh, being 100% accessible all the time. Uh, but we were throwing around the subject of accessibility a little bit. And this will definitely be an episode later because the question of accessibility at theme parks, especially for those with differing uh, abilities and different capacities, um, you know, being able to be included in these experiences that are so beloved by so many. Uh, I, I think that that should be a goal of the art form as well. Uh, yeah, and being able to fulfill those numbers, uh, is not, is not this meritless, like, oh, it's all about the numbers, man, uh, pursuit, where in fact it's, it's much, much more important than, uh, simply making the ride that you think is the most thrilling or the most scary or hits such and such a tone. It's being able to put more people on it, uh, in like a broader sense. Uh, right. And, Not just butts and seats, but mm-hmm. people legitimately engaging in in the experience. Right. And, and being able to share that experience uh, as widely as possible. Uh, but but speaking of uh, kind of the the nostalgia that fans feel, uh, especially for the Tower of Terror, uh, now that it. You know, it, the difference between simply replacing a ride and reskinning a ride is that the ride is still there, right? Yeah. Uh, so, so Tower of Terror is still there, except that's not the Tower of Terror anymore. That's Mission Breakout. And it, so it's there, but not there. Uh, and I could see how that's kind oh. of an uncomfortable experience. Oh, I just had a thought. It's yes. a little bit why why, like, Charles and his recording will still call it MGM Studios. Right. It's it's that the park is still very much there. It's why I still want to put an apostrophe S on Disney's California Adventure. Um, right. It's hard to make that, that, that cognitive switch. Yeah, uh, because Disney has had an extremely long history of recycling uh, pieces of rides or even recycling rides wholesale. Um, with maybe a theming twist. So I think that brings me to my my next example, if you wouldn't mind. Uh, not at all. Uh, so this is really this is really interesting. Indiana Jones uh, colon Temple of the Forbidden Eye dash the Indiana Jones Adventure slash <laughs> uh, please ride this ride ampersand enjoy it. I think is what it's called. <laughs> Uh, but the Indiana Jones ride at Disneyland, uh, is a fantastic ride. Agree or disagree? Agree. Thank you. So it's an amazing ride. Very well themed. Uh, very thrilling. Uh, one of my favorites, one of my all time favorites, uh, in, in the medium, one, one of my all time favorites in the adventure genre. I think it does a lot in the right way. And it's a great adaptation of the Indiana Jones style as well. Um, so that yeah, ride it has, almost just feels like another Indiana Jones movie. Yeah, uh, practically, except you're inside of it. Um, so that whole ride, with its track design still intact and its innovative uh, ride vehicles, which can move independently of the track, very very cool, um, were taken wholesale and reskinned as the dinosaur ride at Disney's Animal Kingdom. Uh, so. The ride is identical. Uh, movement, uh, twists and turns, 
the way that the track is laid out. The main difference is the way that the ride is themed as this trip back in time to retrieve a dinosaur. Uh, and while the dinosaur ride kind of doesn't really have the popularity of the Indiana Jones ride, and I think that actually comes down to the popularity of the property, um, and perhaps that Disney's Animal Kingdom has a different focus, uh, it's kind of outside of the e-ticket attraction. Um, you know, I haven't really heard uh, criticism of this kind of quote-unquote lazy reskin, this reuse of an entire ride system down to the track uh, at all. And and I've wondered, you know, like, people are like, oh, Guardians of the Galaxy is such a lazy reskin. Um, but nobody nobody says this about Dinosaur versus Indiana Jones. And I was I was talking to Charles Gustine okay. about this on Twitter to bring to bring Charles back in kind of the uh the third man on this podcast I would say um to bring Charles back into the conversation though uh Charles was saying that he's been on that ride you know dozens of times and it never occurred to him that they were identical so people that only go to Disneyland or people that only go to Disney World mm. would have no idea of each other's rides right of dinosaur versus indian exactly that's wild isn't that crazy i didn't know that so so there's a certain level of of an information gap um and before you and i started this podcast and we had kind of theme parks on the brain all the time uh you know that was a fact that i didn't really consider is that there are rides at uh, Disney World, which is immense and is five theme parks and has all of this stuff going on, uh, that, that I actually haven't heard of yet, just like you. Um, and that I'm finding out are reskins or reimaginings of uh, beloved Disney attractions. Uh, for example, Body Wars was at Epcot and it was an identical ride down to the motion, uh, with Star Tours. It was the same seating arrangement. Really? Uh, classic Star Tours and Body Wars are the same ride. Um, not to mention the the practice at Disney of recycling animatronics or recycling uh, set elements, such as the uh, reuse of uh, America Sings animatronics on Splash Mountain. I mean, like, right. we we like to think that Disney is constantly innovating and putting out these these new. Uh, ride systems and and adding things all the time, but in, in reality, they're a company like anybody else, and they're trying to maximize efficiency. And you can do that by and reusing profit. things. Uh, and if you can do it convincingly and uh, without people taking too much notice, you can do something truly, truly wonderful. In that nobody will ever say anything about it. It's just Disney magic. Yeah. It's that that like weird ephemeral quality that Disney has that that where where the things that they touch and do it correctly feel magical like they've been grown out of the ground yeah um and when when the theming is correct you don't feel like you're on a ride at a theme park in the middle of southern california you feel like you're in the space or space and <laughs> Ooh. So if you notice that the animatronics get reused, if you notice a reskin, if you're aware, if you follow Disney news, 
if you, you know, take part in this Twitter and, and, and you're paying extremely close attention, it can kind of bring you out of the, of the magic. But if it's done correctly and seamlessly and thoughtfully and not sloppily, it can be, it could be really great mm. and do really cool things for the theme park. Yeah. And, and so to, to kind of, uh, bridge this to our, our audience interactions section. Uh, for one person for whom I think, uh, the reskin really didn't work, uh, was our friend on Twitter, Sassy Captain Rex, <laughs> uh, who, uh, who himself, uh, was a victim of a reskin when, uh, Star Tours was reskinned, right? Um, poor, oh, yeah. poor Captain Rex. Oh, Captain uh, Rex from the cops. left. Left on the floor of Star Tours. Uh, don't worry, Captain Rex, you're coming back as DJ Rex, uh, in Star Wars Galaxy's Edge. Um, so excited. But cannot wait for Star Wars Galaxy's Edge. And this has been our weekly, uh, freak out about Star Wars Galaxy's Edge. Um, <laughs> but Sassy Captain Rex was saying that, uh, we posed this question out to Twitter. Uh, you know, like, what did you notice about the reskin? Uh, do you miss Tower of Terror? Like, what are, what are your emotions on this? And, and Sassy Captain Rex said that this was, uh, our tower in California. Like, we, it, it may have been, by some people's estimation, the, uh, inferior version of a ride that already existed in Florida. Uh, it doesn't have the fifth dimension. It doesn't have the varying drop sequences, but that it, it kind of felt like it belonged to us in California. And I, I can kind of understand that, especially, given uh, this kind of new perspective we have now as Tower of Terror, as the weenie of the, of the entire park, right? This big okay. e-ticket uh, icon. Uh, and that it really did fit the theming of California. Like, this is old Hollywood hotel. Like, here it is. And right. it's all broken down and gross because it's from the 1930s. But, like, that's what makes it thrilling is the spooky hotel. And we don't really have that with the reskin. Uh, what we have now is kind of the Marvel world building that is, uh, incomplete. It's as yet to be seen. Um, and, and that architecture was really important to Captain Rex, he was saying. Um, and, and that's interesting because, uh, for Rex, I think, and this is, this is something he says, he says, what really angered me about the change to Guardians was that the tower was a relatively young ride that people loved uh and that maybe he maybe he felt that there wasn't quite enough time to like let it become a disney classic uh the same way that we might say like pirates of the caribbean has had an incredible lifespan you know 60ish years of running daily and having minimal changes made to it same with haunted mansion these uh fixtures and that tower of terror might have almost become that uh, and it really did kind of fit into the world and there really wasn't a connection to the Florida version, um, where, where people weren't like, well, it's just a, it's just a lazy reskin more like, ah, yeah, this makes sense here. This feels real. Um, and they were kind of achieving what we were talking about, which is that, you know, through, through the information gap of us not really thinking about Florida's rides all that often. Uh, it felt natural. Uh, it felt like it belonged. And I, I thought that was a really nice sentiment, Captain Rex. Uh, I, I might not agree that, uh, Mission Breakout is a, is, is a cash grab per se, or that it, it's a, all about the merchandising and the tie-in. 
Um, but I think that that's a really interesting thing uh, to to kind of bring up is that we felt like it was part of DCA. It was kind of part of home. Uh, and and I right. think that that makes sense. No, it it does it does make sense. Uh, I admit, when I first was reading the comments on Twitter, my my gut reaction was to disagree entirely. <laughs> but uh, no, th- thinking about it again in the context of the conversation we've just had, uh, I think that is a, a very thoughtful way to put it. Um, like like I'd like to see, I think, some statistics. If anybody who's listening has these, um, I want to see some numbers on how many rides are the same between the two parks, between Disneyland and Disney World. How many rides are the same and which ones were Disneyland originals and which one were Disney World originals? And like how the two parks share IPs, like how like how the two parks share rides. Because, yeah, he's right. The Tower of Terror, and, and, and or you're right, I don't remember who said it first. The Tower of Terror in its old Hollywood glam kind of feels like it belongs to California, but it started in Florida. And that maybe we should have kept Tower of Terror, but Florida should have reskinned because, like, it fits our California theming better, you know? Sure, I, I, I completely understand. If, if the mission of California Adventure is still to kind of be a California showcase, um, except, you know, fanciful and crazy and, and thrilling, uh, then maybe we should have kept this old Hollywood thrill ride. Um, but if the mission has changed to perhaps, uh, if the mission has sort of, uh, broken out of that shell, uh, <laughs> uh, then, then I think what we're seeing with mission breakout is really a, a re, a realignment, uh, that is still in progress at California adventure towards being more a, new showcase of Disney's new properties uh, and these new worlds that they're willing to create. Uh, and that's, that's what I'm excited for with the reskin is that this is a preview yes. uh, and we're going to soon be experiencing uh, all sorts of <laughs> Marvel theme park universe stories which is yeah. so incredible uh, it's be to great, even imagine. Because with very few exceptions, I have loved all of the new Marvel Cinematic Universe stuff. Very, very few exceptions. I have found it all thrilling and fun and exciting. And I think that if they put as much thoughtful effort into the rest of Marvel Land as they did Mission Breakout, it could be incredible. Well, Alice, our time talking about the Twilight Zone Tower of Terror and Mission Breakout has come to an end. I think you mean Guardians of the Galaxy hyphen mission colon breakout exclamation point. And breakout is in a different font. Yes, uh, we are we are done <laughs> talking about these two rides and their reskin and that effect on them. So I hope you guys enjoyed this episode if you're listening in. And this brings us to my favorite part of the episode when we get to shout out to all of the cool people that we are meeting through the podcasting community uh, on Twitter and elsewhere. So uh, first I'd like to give a special shout out to our friend and contributor, Charles Gustine. Charles, Charles, you're the best. Uh, 
Uh, thank you so much Always for that, Colin. And and really, it it has been incredible the way that you've uh, given us all sorts of feedback and ideas for the show. Uh, Charles's show is called Iconography, uh, and you can find it anywhere that podcasts are sold. Or are, do we sell this? Is it sold? <laughs> no, no, no. In fact, uh, we pay to do this. So. Oh. Oh, well, you can find ah, it anywhere yeah. that podcasts are bought by their creators and then given away for free. I'd also like to do a special shout out to the hosts of Adapt or Perish. Uh, their names are Ariel and Jeremy. Uh, they're a married couple and they do this podcast about adaptations. And I've just started listening to you guys. I listened to your uh, Princess Bride episode right before we started this. And we found you guys thanks to Charles. So... Thanks again to Charles, and thank you to you two for the work that you do. They can be found at adaptorperishcast.com. Uh, really great podcast. I'm so, I'm so excited to start listening. The Princess Bride is my favorite book and film. So uh, uh, glad, to, glad to be able to interact with them on Twitter. This is going to be great. Definitely. Uh, and uh, a couple of other cool interactions that we've had on Twitter since uh, our last episode – I got to talk to Nando V Movies, uh, one of my favorite YouTube personalities. Uh, we talked a little bit about his, uh, speaking of Marvel, uh, his theory that Rhodey from the Iron Man series might be a scroll, um, which is one of my favorite theories about uh, the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Uh, so definitely check him out. He also has a great video about uh, Ego from uh, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. And the kind of the pastiche of characters from the comics that Kurt Russell's portrayal was. So I thought that was really interesting. And it was just so cool to talk to uh, one of my favorites on Twitter. So thank you, Nando. Uh, everybody check him out. Nando V Movies on YouTube. Um, we also have a lot of great uh, interactions with people like the Diz Dude on Twitter. And Ken Pellman, uh, who hosts a podcast about... Uh, Cleaning the Kingdom. Uh, he worked for a long time in custodial uh, at Disneyland, and he's got a lot of great stories about that. So, oh my god, to definitely all of, listen to Cleaning the Kingdom. It's so good. <laughs> to all of you guys who uh, interact with us on Twitter, it is one of our greatest pleasures and privileges uh, while making this podcast to be able to shout you guys out. So, thank you all so much. You are all wonderful. This is a great community, and we hope to hear from you guys some more as we continue to produce this podcast. And special, special, special shout-outs and thank you to Sassy Captain Rex for your con contribution to this episode, and as always, to the dearest darling, Kate Prince, special for correspondent. her patience and kindness. Special correspondent, Kate Prince, for her patience and kindness and the uh, giving up of her living room space. So that this podcast can be, uh, can exist. Can continue to exist. Um, we got a couple of really busy weeks coming up, so you may see some different content from us in the next couple of weeks, but uh, we hope you stick with us. And here's the outro. Thank you for listening to Those Happy Places. I'm Buddy Duquesne. And I'm Alice White. The research for this episode was done by Buddy Duquesne and edited by Alice White. This episode was edited by Buddy Duquesne and produced by Alice White. Our theme music is Golden Gate by the California Feet Warmers, featuring Phil Alvin. Find the Feet Warmers on YouTube or on their website, californiafeetwarmers.com. And if 
if you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, and tell your friends. Send people to our website at www.thosehappyplaces.com and join us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash thosehappyplaces, where we're always talking about theme parks and ideas for future episodes. We're also on Twitter. That's right. I'm at Buddy underscore Duquesne. Duquesne is spelled D-U-Q-U-E-S-N-E. And I'm at Alice White, T-H-P, for Those Happy Places. Thanks for listening, and we hope you return to Those Happy Places.